Mark chapter 2, if you have a Bible. Mark chapter 2, as we near the end of our series and practice on the Sabbath. You know, normally, if you've been around, uh, we're late into February now, we would be done with our winter practice by now. But, you know, if you've been around the last few months, you get the gist of Sabbath, at least in your mind. Now all you really need to do is practice it and let it sink into kind of the fabric of your body. But I was reading recently Adam Grant and his little book, Originals, where he has a summary of all the recent data around communication theory. And he just makes the point that most leaders and organizations under-communicate by a margin of 10 Meaning if myself and our teaching team, we teach on something five times, like in order for it to sink into our community, we actually need to teach on it 50 times. So this is week seven of a 50-week series on, no, I'm just kidding. But I thought, you know what? Rather than jump back into Matthew, there was just a bunch of kind of odd change in my note file about stuff I wanted to say, and I thought I would just kind of put that into a teaching and end with some closing thoughts on Sabbath as we move forward in winter. A few weeks ago, a couple who's new to our church came up to me after the gathering and said, you know, how is it that we have been around the church our entire life and yet we've never heard most of this? And I said, man, that was my experience as well. Sabbath was not even on my radar in my, I grew up in the church and son of a pastor, all of that was not even on my radar until my mid-20s and not really a part of my life until I was about 30. And they said, man, this is crazy. And then they said something interesting. They said, it feels to us like what you're saying about Sabbath isn't just about one day of the week. It's about all of life. And that is, my friends, nail on the head. It's about what Marva J. Don calls a Sabbath spirituality, a way of relationship to the Spirit of God that is grounded in a Sabbath-like, what Jesus calls, rest for your soul. In my life with Jesus, this practice has become way more than a practice. It has become a means of the grace of God in my life. It has become the anchor point, really, for my emotional health and my spiritual life with Jesus. And it's just, it's done such a deep work in my soul and in so many others in our community. We just want it for all of you in our community. On that note, a few closing thoughts. Um, Let's begin with the life of Jesus. We finally come to Jesus of Nazareth on the Sabbath. We started in Genesis, and then the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and then the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy then the prophets, then Psalm 23, and now we come to Jesus, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, here's a story. Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. Now the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now pause. To clarify, if you're new to the Bible, there is no law in the Torah, or what we now call the Old Testament, against snacking on the Sabbath. It's not like God is anti-snack, and now in the New Covenant, we're free from that legalism, free to snack any time we want, as long as it's organic, all right? There's no, that's not there. The Torah, we read the Ten Commandments, all it says is, quote, on six days you shall work and do all your labor, but the seventh is a day of rest to Yahweh your God. Now the problem is, both work and rest are a little bit ambiguous, would you agree? Take work, for example, is exercise work on the Sabbath. What about gardening? What about cooking? What about washing the dishes? Is cooking okay, but not washing the dishes? That's what I vote for. It's a running debate in my house right now, right? Or take rest. Is, again, exercise a form of rest or not? What about reading? I find reading really life-giving. Other people find it laborious and just cruel. What about play? What about frisbee golf? Is that rest or not? They are ambiguous categories. And that's actually a beautiful thing because there's all sorts of freedom in that ambiguity for you to be you. You do you. And we Portlanders are already great at that in the beginning. Um, But this creates a problem where, all right, if we're not to work and we are to rest, what if we accidentally overstep? So the Pharisees, and it's easier to think of Jesus as down on the Pharisees, and people often forget that Jesus most likely was a Pharisee. That was a sect inside first century, the kind of Jewish landscape. And most likely that was the sect that Jesus either identified with or most identified with. And most of Jesus' rhetoric against the Pharisees is most likely insider critique. 
And the Pharisees started out well. We think the genealogy of the Pharisees goes back to Ezra, if you know that story in the Old Testament, with the zeal for the Torah to obey God. And what they would do is they called it building a fence around the Torah. So think of when you go to a national park or a state park and there is something beautiful but dangerous, a waterfall or a cliff edge, and then somebody from the government builds a fence. And they never put the fence right at the edge of the cliff, which is where all the good Instagram action is. They always put it back about 20 feet where you can't see anything, and it's such a pain to take your children, climb over the fence, go to the edge. It's just such a pain. Not me. Gerald does that. Um, But the point of, the reason they set the fence back is just in case you were unwise and you accidentally trip over and hurt yourself. It was the exact same principle, building a fence around the Torah. So, so the line there was don't work, but rather rest on the Sabbath. And building a fence around the Torah, they would step back and they added hundreds of rules and regulations or, or laws about what you could and more importantly what you could not do on the Sabbath. Everything from what kind of food you could cook or not cook to how far you could walk. There's a phrase all through the New Testament, a Sabbath day's walk, which is right about a quarter mile. They actually put that into legislation. This is the point where a leisurely stroll becomes work, right? At a quarter mile. Some of you are like, it's way before that for me. Um, Whatever it is. Now, again, the heart here was not bad. But, I mean, the heart to, I really want to obey the commands of God, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. But somewhere along the way, over the generations, the Pharisees lost the plot line. All that to say, Jesus, and and by the way, I'm sorry, I forgot this. Later, the Pharisees codified all of these extra kind of added ancillary rules and regulations or laws into a later writing on top of the Torah called the Mishnah. And Jesus, long story short, is pro-Torah and anti-Mishnah. So the line here, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They are not breaking the Sabbath command. They are not breaking Torah. They are breaking Mishnah. They are breaking the added rules and regulations put there not by God, but by religious leaders. And Jesus is just not down with it. Now, the story goes on. He answered, 25, have you never read, it's a little sarcasm there from Jesus, What David did, these are Bible experts, have you never read? Um, What David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. That's in Torah. And he also gave them, some of them, to his companions. So Jesus is a Bible teacher. He's speaking to other Bible teachers or experts, and he's giving a biblical citation. Here's why what I'm doing is okay. Then, 27, he said to them, quote, The Sabbath was made for man, and the word man there is better translated mankind or humanity, not mankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, it's Jesus' name for himself, is Lord. He is over even the Sabbath. This little two-line teaching or saying is one of Jesus' most important teachings on the Sabbath. But it's a little bit tricky to translate from first century Hebrew culture to 21st century American culture. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and the cultural context is very similar to our own. Other times you're reading it and it's very different. This is a great example of where it's very different. Most first century Jews needed to hear the second part of Jesus' teaching. That's where the emphasis is. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath meaning you have it backward. You've lost the plot line. You've turned this life-giving practice into a soul-sucking legalistic rule. But here's the problem. I would argue most 21st century Americans need to hear the first part of the teaching. The Sabbath was made for man or mankind. The Sabbath was designed, it was created, it was set in motion, it was tailor-fit for you and for your humanity and your soul. We have the exact opposite problem to a first century Pharisee. It's not that we have hundreds of legalistic rules and all sorts of regulations that are nonsensical about the Sabbath. It's that we don't have any at all. Most followers of Jesus in America don't even practice the Sabbath or don't even know the difference between a Sabbath and a day off. And that's not to slam anybody. It's to say we are literally in the exact opposite cultural moment. And we need the practice of Sabbath more now than ever before. 
in the busyness of urban life, the noise, the traffic, the chaos, and the crowd of the city, in the distraction of the digital age with your phone in your pocket, an alert after text message, after news update, after this, after whatever it is, in just the hedonism of our city where there's so much to eat and drink, like so much you have to eat in church, like you're just not enough time to do it in between, right, Christian? I mean, you have our full blessing, right? There's so much to eat and drink and taste and experience and see and visit and check out. We just desperately need to recapture this practice. One of the most downloaded TED Talks of all time is The Art of Stillness by Pico Ayer, where he argues for what he calls a secular Sabbath. He tells the story in his book as well where he travels around to Trappist abbeys and Christian monasteries learning from Thomas Merton and others all about the Christian practice of Sabbath. And at the end, he says, even if you are full-on secular, as he is, we desperately need to recapture this practice. Because, watch what happens next. Chapter 3. Remember, the chapter break's not there in the original Greek. Another time, or put another way, here's another story about Jesus and the Sabbath. Jesus went into the synagogue. That was very common for Jesus. There's another line that says, as was his custom. On Sabbath morning, you would find Jesus at synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, some kind of a disease. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Notice the play on words here. To do good or to do evil? What's the answer? To do good? To save life or to kill? What's the answer? To save life? Of course, it's rhetorical. But they remained silent. Nothing to say to that. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees threw a party because somebody just got healed at church. Nope. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might assassinate Jesus. Interesting. After Jesus' little two-line teaching on how the Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath, but the Pharisees, you know, lost the plot line along the way, next comes a story about a man who is healed on the Sabbath. In fact, did you know that the majority, I don't have a good stat for you, but the majority of Jesus' healings take place on the Sabbath. I don't think that's random or haphazard. I think that is on purpose and deliberate. Why? Because the Sabbath is a day for healing. Or if you prefer salvation. I say this a lot, but the English words healing and salvation, which we think of as very different concepts, are two English translations of the same Greek word, sotera. So when you are reading through the Gospels and you read that Jesus healed somebody or you read that Jesus saved somebody, you are reading the exact same Greek word. Meaning what? Meaning healing is salvation and salvation is healing. Even the English word salvation, the etymology of that is from the Latin salve, as in the ointment that you put on a wound for healing. Sabbath, is the means by which Jesus does some of his best healing work in our mind and our body by his spirit and his truth and in his community. That was true in the first century, and I would argue it is just as true in the 21st century. In my own practice of Sabbath, I find this strange phenomenon. You know, on a dream week, I just like mosey through. There's no hurry in my work week. Nothing goes bad. Nobody's upset with me. This basically never happens. Um, And I don't overwork, and I sleep well, and I arrive at the Sabbath, for me, Friday evening, and I'm pretty much already rested, and I'm just like fired up to just delight, party, celebrate, chill with my children, pray, speak in tongues, you know, just the stuff you do. And I'm just ready to roll, and I enter in, and then the, the chaos of the family, such as, you know, yesterday morning on the Sabbath, I'm sitting there, reading the scripture, exhausted from jet lag, finally ready for a little quiet. And then my son, my 13-year-old boy, just discovered Weezer. Um, So, like, the covers record, which is so fun, by the way, was like his gateway drug. And I'm like, you know, they actually have older stuff. He's like, really? And I said, yes, this, let me introduce you to the Blue Album. I was like, 
every song here is amazing. And so now he's just obsessed with the Blue Album. And we have like a Sonos system in our house. And if you have that, it's like they have a speaker in their room and they're allowed to play it as long as it's not too loud on the Sabbath. But if you click party mode, it just goes through the whole house. So I'm just there. I'm exhausted. I'm drinking my coffee. I'm reading. And all of a sudden, it's just blaring loud. Say it ain't so. It just goes for it. And there's this dance party down the hall in my children's room. And on a dream week, I'm just like, yeah, say it ain't so. That's fine. That's just Blair Weezer in the middle of my quiet time. I love you, children. I love your enthusiasm for life. All the single people are thinking, of course, that's what anybody would say. Yep, have fun with that. Um, when you have ch- so my point is, on a dream week, ah, I'm just fantastic. Most of the time, it's not like that at all. I arrive at the Sabbath tired or overtired with all of my stuff. I don't really feel my soul. We start at night. We have dinner. It's a great time. And then I just collapse into bed, exhausted, and I sleep. But something happens to me. Normally, I don't know, 10 or 11 a.m., on an average kind of week the next morning, where all, I have this moment, inevitably I have this moment, as long as Weezer is not involved. I have this moment where all of a sudden I just think, ah, I feel my soul again. It's like all of a sudden I feel depth and texture and life and health and happiness flow back. And, and it, the only word I can really come up with is healing. It feels like healing because the Sabbath is a day for healing, or if you prefer, salvation. But notice in the story that we just read, do the Pharisees see the healing and throw a party? No, they see the healing and plot an assassination. That's how far off the plot line, how much the Pharisees lost the heart behind the practice of Sabbath. And while on one hand, we live in the exact opposite cultural moment, we have the exact opposite problem. Our problem is not legalism, but liberalism. It's not that we have all the rules and regulations. It's that we have none at all. Still, we're human beings just like they were human beings. And it's easy for us to make the same mistake in that it's easy for us to miss the heart behind the practice, the why behind all of it. So just to end our time as a way of reminder, most of this is reminder, four reasons for the why behind the Sabbath based on four English translations of the Hebrew word Shabbat. The Sabbath is about stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. A short word on each. First off, stopping. That is the most literal translation of Shabbat. It is to stop. Clearly to stop working for a day, Hence why the Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off, where we still work. We just do all the work we don't get paid for. In our house, there is a running date between my, debate between my lovely wife over here and I over dishwashing. Like, we have an extra large sink. I call it the Sabbath sink. And my vote is we cook, because that's restful for me. But we do not do dishes. That's not restful at all. And so by the end of Sabbath, you should, like by last night, it was literally just 10 feet tall. Not 10 feet tall. It was 2 feet tall. But whatever. It was over, it drives my poor wife crazy. So pray for her that she would come around to the truth. Um, my, my point is, not, it's not just that we stop our paid work, but that we stop all work. We even stop thinking about working. I read a fascinating study recently that said just thinking about work releases the same chemicals that induce stress in our bodies as working itself. So if you're there on the Sabbath and you're sitting on your couch playing guitar and drinking, you know, tea or whatever your thing is, and all of a sudden you start to think about relational conflict with your boss, you might as well be sitting in the office going at it. It has the exact same effect on your brain and therefore on your body. We have to cultivate the mental discipline to set aside all the thoughts of work for a day. And if it's really hard for you, it gets easier, but there, it just is hard, especially at first. It might, you might find it helpful to have a little pad where you write things down and then you put it away, or before the Sabbath, write down all the things you're worrying about or working on and just put it away or something. But there is a discipline to set aside all of that. But more, not just working, we even stop worrying We stop carrying not just the physical burdens or intellectual for the majority of us in the knowledge of economy, but emotional and relational and even spiritual. And finally, we stop wanting. 
QR teaching on not shopping as a way to index our heart away from greed and discontentment and restlessness toward gratitude and contentment and restfulness in the way of Jesus. And in stopping for one full day each week, we take ground in the war against hurry in our soul and our society. I love this from Marva Don. Intimacy with God cannot be rushed. We cannot enjoy the presence of God if we're always looking at our watches. That is why Sabbath keeping is so important because on that day we never wear our watches at all. Or I love this from Alan Fadlim. The Sabbath is God's antidote for our hurried, harried pace of life and gives us the unhurried, one in seven rhythm woven into the fabric of creation. That seventh day is a space for us to enter into a needed recovery and perhaps go through the inevitable withdrawals from the hurry, drivenness, and workaholism that plagues so many of our lives, families, communities, and organizations. On the Sabbath, hurry becomes a vice, the exact opposite of our workaday world's way of making it a virtue. Sabbath is like a secret weapon in the war on hurry. So first, Sabbath is about stopping. Second, Sabbath is about resting. When used as a verb, Shabbat is normally translated rest, as in Genesis 2, God Shabbat, or he rested on the Sabbath day. And this is more than just sleep. You can get that from an expensive mattress and an Ambien prescription. Just a little free word of advice for you right there. This is soul-level, holistic rest. I mean, it is physical. Like on the Sabbath, we sleep. And then we sit on the couch. And then we lie around and we lounge. Some of you, I'm just telling you, if you don't have a bathrobe, this is kind of a, I know this is kind of a first world thing, but you need to get one. This is just a thing I think would have Jesus full. I mean, of course it would have his blessing. He wore a robe all the time, <laughs> right? None of this gene nonsense, raw denim. He's all, of course Jesus is about the robe. He's Jewish, right? For sure. One study um, from Juan Carlos Lerman out of the University of Arizona concluded that the human body is wired for a 25-hour day, not 24. So if you literally feel like the world is moving too fast, guess what? It is. It's moving an hour ahead of you every single week, which is why by the weekend you feel a need to catch up on sleep. This is, of course, exacerbated by the modern world, electricity in particular. Um, Set the smartphone aside, just the light bulb. Before Thomas Edison, the average, I've read this so many times, the average American slept 10 to 11 hours a night. Every single night. You read about John Wesley getting up to pray and fast at 4 a.m., and it sounds amazing until you realize, oh, he went to bed at 6.30 the (laughs) night before. (laughs) Of course, what else would you do with your life, right? Um, I was reading one psychologist's uh, survey of the mental health crisis right now on elite universities. So Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all of them have suicide rates that are through the roof, depression, anxiety. It's, just, it's a full-on crisis. And her prognosis was 75% of the problem could be solved if students would just sleep eight hours every single night. So there's something to, like, don't rest is physical before it's anything else. Like, on the Sabbath, can I just encourage you, sleep. And then get up and have some coffee. And then if you're like my lovely wife over here, just go back to bed. I mean, you literally slept until 10 yesterday. Had coffee, we had brunch, and then took another hour-long nap that afternoon. It's amazing. It's so fantastic. Like, it's a beautiful thing to just let your body come to rest. Physical rest, mental rest. On the Sabbath, we set aside the hard work of problem-solving that is our work week. We just let our mind come to peace. Emotional rest. Abraham Joshua Heschel had this great line, it's a sin to be sad on the Sabbath day. T and I try, and we regularly fail, but we try to not talk about anything sad on the Sabbath. If we find our conversation drifting toward a sad subject, one of us will regularly just kind of hit pause and say, let's come back to this tomorrow. Like there's six other days of the week to talk about Christmas with the in-laws um, for now. <laughs> and it's not that we suppress our pain. It's just that we postpone it in the same way that you would do on a birthday or an anniversary or Christmas or Thanksgiving. There's just a sense of, you know what? That is a valid and legitimate conversation 
for another time. Today, we are here to curate joy. And that's not to disagree with anything that Bethany said. There is about coming to a place where you process your emotional pain. And there's a wisdom there to know, is this a day where I need to process my emotional pain before God and in community? Or is this a day where I just need to rest and come back to process that later from a place not of exhaustion, but from a place of Sabbath rest? And may God give you wisdom to know the difference between the two. Emotional rest. And then finally, it's a day for spiritual rest. You know, Orthodox Jews, who, and we're not Orthodox Jews, but they literally have three and a half millennia of best practices on the Sabbath, so it is worth your time to pay attention. And they refuse to do any kind of intercessory prayer on the Sabbath, because as many of you know, that type of prayer feels a lot like work. I would argue that it is a way that we work with God to bend reality in the direction of the kingdom of God. And so they actually don't ask God for anything on the Sabbath. I pray a lot on the Sabbath, but if you were to follow me around with a hidden camera, you would doubt that. You would say, what you call prayer looks a lot like you drinking coffee in your bathrobe (laughs) or moseying on a walk through Forest Park or cuddling your children. It's exactly what it looks like. It looks like resting in God, and I mean that to the nth degree. I love this from Mark Buchanan in his little book, The Rest of God. Sabbath is about trust. Sabbath is turning over to God all those things, our money, our work, our status, our reputations, our plans, our projects that we're otherwise tempted to hold tight in our own closed fists, hold onto for dear life. On the Sabbath, we release the illusion of control to God. We let God be God. We let God run the universe without us for a day. And guess what? The universe does just fine. And there is something here where rest is an act of trust in God. To sleep, to turn off your phone, to take a day to just do nothing, contribute nothing, produce nothing, just enjoy, rest, sleep, be present, is an act of trust that God is God and you're not. However you define the word sovereignty, whatever you think about that theological debate and controversy, many people claim to believe in the sovereignty of God but don't practice it. Sabbath is a way where you put your money where your mouth is and you say, I trust in God. And this way of life, this way of work followed by rest that is all built out of a heart posture of trust is embedded into the fabric of creation itself. In Genesis 1, God creates a pattern for time by naming the day as, quote, evening followed by morning. Did you catch that? Ever on your read through the Bible in a year? Not morning followed by evening. In the Western pattern for time, the day technically starts at midnight, but um, culturally it starts in the morning when you wake up. That's the beginning of a new day. That's the Western worldview. In the Hebrew and in the biblical pattern, time starts at sundown. That's why the traditional Jewish Sabbath begins 20 minutes before sundown on Friday night. Eugene Peterson has this fascinating insight into that time dynamic. The Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep, and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called to participate in God's creative action, what he's already doing. We respond in faith, in work, but always grace is previous and primary. We wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. Theologically, the day starts with sleep and the week starts with Sabbath rest from Genesis 1 to the right. It's as if God was teaching salvation by grace through faith millennia before the Apostle Paul was ever born, teaching you and me to live from a heart posture of trust in God. But stopping, resting, 
just now getting to the good stuff. Third, the Sabbath is about delighting. Shabbat can also be translated to delight or to throw a party or to celebrate. It's that kind of a rest, not just that I'm in a fugue and grumpy and so I sleep on the couch all afternoon. It's the, sure, do that for a bit and then throw a party. It's easy to think the Sabbath is just about the negative, in particular when a lot of the best practices have rules about your phone or your work or your you know, shopping or whatever it is. Um, and so it's easy to think that it's about saying no to work or to worry or to want, and it is, but really it's far more about space for saying yes to delight. I mean, after all, in Hebrew, that word blessed, it's Barak in Hebrew, like our former president, and it can be translated blessed, or another way to translate it is happy. A blessed man or woman is a happy man or woman, and a blessed day, Genesis 1, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. A blessed day is a happy day. As I said a few weeks ago, one great question, if you're new to this or old to this, to give shape to your Sabbath practice is, man, what could I do for a full 24-hour period that would just fill my soul with joy? Psychologists have a term for when you save all sorts of good things for one event, such as a birthday or anniversary or vacation or like graduation day or whatever. They call it pleasure stacking. I so love this. Sabbath is a day for pleasure stacking, where you just save up all of your money, all of your good things, all the best of your stuff, and you save it for one day of the week. In our house, we have special foods that we eat only on the Sabbath. My poor wife over here is ketotarian, which is just demonic and horrible, but I'm proud of you. But on the Sabbath night, she eats homemade sourdough bread and a cookie with ice cream, and just keto be darned, right? Whatever. Um, it's the one night we regularly have dessert. Uh, it's the one, if we have expensive wine in the house from somebody or whatever, we save it for Sabbath night. Normally, I limit my coffee intake in the morning to try to be responsible with my body and all that nonsense. On the Sabbath, I drink all the coffee that I want. Not all the wine I want, but all the coffee that I want. Because um, that's socially acceptable to abuse your body in that way if you're a Christian. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's a whole other teaching series I should give at some point. Um, I let myself read as much fiction as I want. There's nothing productive in sitting there reading. What, there's nothing productive other than it's life-giving for my soul. When our kids were little, we had a special, this is a, like just a life hack for you parents with little kids. We had a special box of toys for the kids just for the Sabbath. Because kids are like, we just got a dog. They're very similar at the young age, in my experience, in that like you, you give them a toy and all of a sudden you just had 40 minutes to just sit on the couch and relax. It's the best thing ever. And so we just had special toys for the Sabbath. Like it's just a day to pamper your soul, to feed your soul with all that is good and beautiful and true. Because our world is full of so much that is evil and ugly and a lie. And in particular in the digital age where our minds are literally trained by the device in your pocket to see the world through a more and more and more negative light. Sabbath is a way of retraining our mind to delight in the good and the beautiful and the true. Feed yourself with the beauty of creation. I just find myself out walking in Forest Park often on the Sabbath, even in winter. Feed yourself with the beauty of art or music or literature or your home design or whatever, or fashion or whatever it is for you, just to feed your soul with beauty. Again, I love what Marva Dawn says about this. Observing the Sabbath gives us the opportunity to be as careful as we can to fill our lives with beauty and to share beauty with the world around us. When we observe a day especially set apart for beauty, all the rest of life is made more beautiful. The Sabbath becomes a garden park in the midst of the technization of life. It brings us tranquility and intimacy, sensitivity and creativity, butterflies and goldfinches and roses. In a larger sense, the whole practice of Sabbath-keeping makes me feel more beautiful. As I spend the day reflecting on the character of God, I am overwhelmed by his love for me. As I feast upon his goodness and all its beautiful forms, I realize more profoundly that I am a special part of his creation and designed especially for his purposes in a uniquely beautiful way. This is why it is such a gift that the Sabbath comes every seven days. 
unlike most of the practices of the way of Jesus, or if you prefer, the spiritual discipline, the timing of this one is set by God himself, not by your inner kind of clock of what spiritual discipline do I need for this season of my life. Oh, I need prayer. Oh, I need to read the scriptures. Oh, I need to read a psalm right now. Oh, I need some time with my community. Or, oh, I need to go see a spiritual director. This one is set not by you, but by God. And what I love about that is Sabbath comes at the end of a great week where you just got engaged and you're high on the, as the moon or whatever it is, and it comes at the end of a horrific week, the day after your mom died, the week after you lost your job, the week after this national emergency or crisis. It comes right like a clock. It just comes right through in summer and in winter when all is well and when everything is falling apart to remind us as a reminder from God that it's okay that we're not always okay. It's okay in those seasons of the dark night of the soul when your prayers are unanswered, your dreams are empty, when God himself feels a million miles away, feels more absent than present in your soul, still, even then, Sabbath comes as a kiss from God with this gift of peace that even though you don't get it, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it's hard, it's okay because we have God. And the okayness isn't because nothing bad will happen to you, It isn't because whatever bad thing happens to you is God's will for your life with some divine blueprint behind it. It's because no matter what happens to you, you have God and you're not alone. God will bring good out of no matter what the evil is in your life. Happiness is the result far more of communion with the Father and the character of who you become with Jesus than it is the result of the circumstances of your life. And it's okay And Sabbath comes weekly to remind us this and to teach us to be happy even in all the seasons of our life. For many of us, joy does not just happen. Like all the scientific data is in right now and experts are saying that joy or how happy you are is at least 50% your genetics. So some of you just won the genetic lottery when it comes to happiness and we hate you. Um, Clearly, some of us did not win the genetic (laughs) lottery at all. And so for us, when I say that tongue-in-cheek, but you know Richard Foster called joy, quote, a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. I love that. And yes, the Sabbath is a day for the spiritual disciplines in church and scripture and prayer, all of that. But it's also a day to like open a bottle of wine, play Weezer on Sonos, pleasure stack, and just throw a dance party in the living room, whatever or however it is that you delight, just to delight in God. Finally, it's a day for worshiping. I say this last because there is a pattern that I have come to notice, at least in my own inner phenomenology, And I used it as the order for this teaching. And that pattern is from stopping to resting to delighting to worshiping. I find that when I stop, when I just literally slow my body down and I stop, I don't move anymore. I don't work, I don't worry, I don't want, I don't shop, I don't buy, I don't sell, I don't accomplish anything. I just sleep and and then I rest. I begin at a holistic level, not just with my body, but with my mind, with my soul to rest and trust in God. I find that after a while, I find an increase in my capacity to delight. All of a sudden, I'm like there and I'm noticing the bird out the window. And I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm really into birds. And I'm like, oh, such amazing. I'm just like going, Jesus, look at the birds of the air. And I'm like, I used to, I used to think bird watching was the dumbest thing ever. Maybe it's just because I'm approaching 40 and it's like an older person thing, I think. I don't know. Now I'm like, we should go bird watching. <laughs> Birds are just amazing. <laughs> Where is that coming from? Is that aging? Is that, I was homeschooled? Is that, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I need to know the name of that bird because that is a beautiful bird or whatever. But I, on a serious note, I begin to notice more. I begin to see, because in the week I just rush through and there's busyness and there's a million distractions in my phone and my children and my job and email. And all of a sudden I just stop and I rest and I have new emotional capacity to see the world for how incredible it is and my life in it with all of its problems. But gosh, the good outweighs the bad. 
And I just find this new capacity to delight in the world and in God and in my life in it. And that naturally leads me to a place of worship. I just find myself, I just break out in gratitude or in singing or in prayer or in thank you, God, or God, you're amazing, or God, I don't know what that bird is called, but you killed it with that one, or whatever it is. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book Sacred Rhythms, in her chapter on Sabbath, sees a similar pattern. Quote, I know what it's like to rest for hours until I have the energy to delight in something. Notice that it takes a while. Good food, a good book, a leisurely walk, a long-awaited conversation with someone I love. I know what it's like to feel joy and hope and peace flow back into my body and soul, though I had thought it might never come again. I know what it's like to see my home and my children through the Sabbath eyes of enjoyment. I know what it's like to have rest turn into delight and delight turn into gratitude and gratitude into worship. Very similar pattern. I find that to be true in my own practice. This is one of the many reasons that for most of you, not all of you, not myself, but for most of you, Sunday is by far the best day to practice Sabbath. In fact, for over a millennia and a half, Sabbath and Sunday worship were synonymous. In Amer- like if you said Sabbath, people assumed you also meant church. And if you said church or Sunday, people also assumed you meant Well, after that was Sunday dinner, and then you lounge around the house, and you rest, and you worship, and you don't, like, they just assumed Sabbath and Sunday were synonymous. It was not in American culture until very recent memory, maybe the 50s, that the two were separated, but they go together. So on the Sabbath, we stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. That is the why behind all of this. And all of you are invited into this. We have one final practice for you up at practicingtheway.org slash Sabbath. If you're playing catch-up, there are seven practices total. Myself, our team, Bethany, we're all here just to help you as you figure it out with your family, your stage of life, single, children, no children, empty nest, or whatever with your community. But first, to begin... You have to decide. Everybody loves the idea of Sabbath. Everybody's like, yeah, I mean, who's down with just like delight and worship and happiness? Everybody's down for that. But to actually practice Sabbath is one of the most punk rock, countercultural, anti-Portland things you could ever do. I mean, you're literally fighting capitalism itself, right? Like, take that, you know? Um, And it will require hard, courageous decisions to be made. Because to say yes to, say, to Sabbath is to say no to a whole lot of other things. Every sacrifice, I think, is more than worth it times 10. But you have to decide. And we're not here to coerce you, to control you, just to invite you and help you along the journey. This is kind of a life message for me. I, just, I care about this so much because it has done such a work in my soul. And I want that so badly for all of you. I want it for our community. I want us to be known as a Sabbath community where people experience rest in God. I want that so bad. But now after teaching on this for a number of years, I find that people have one of three basic responses whenever we teach on this. One, they're really into it, and they begin to practice it, and it's life-changing, and from then on, they measure time in kind of before and after Sabbath categories. Or two, they're really into it, think it's fascinating, sounds amazing, they dabble, but they don't really actually do it, and it's just out of sight, out of mind. It was like, oh yeah, that was a great little series we did. I remember that teaching. That was great. Oh yeah, I love it. They're not anti. It's just not in their body. It never made it into their day-to-day life. And three, I find then a number of people, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is, but a number of other people that just aren't into it at all just not down. It's just something about it. They're just not into it. And they come up with all sorts of objections against it. Such, uh, let me just speak to a few that I hear on a regular basis. What if it becomes a legalistic, pharisaical rule? To which I say, man, that could happen. I don't think you're in danger of that right now, but um, (laughs) at all. But hey, it could happen. So you know what? Why don't you not do that? That sounds lame. Like, don't make it about rules. Have rules, but just don't make it about rules. I, I, would, I think you're right. Don't do that. Um, second, some people say, well, isn't this part of the old covenant? And aren't we free from that in the new covenant? What about Paul says? And there's more that I don't have time to go into. I basically will say, you know, I don't think so. 
I don't think that's the right way to read the New Testament and Paul's few comments on the Sabbath. Um, but, you know, some really smart people think that is. And so, cool. If you're not into it, feel free to ignore it. I think you will do so at your own peril, but it's your soul. I care about you, so I advocate do it. But, hey, man, this is your decision. Or I hear a lot, my work schedule is sporadic, and I just can't do a full 24 hours. To which I say, well, then do what you can. Start where you're at. I really think there is something about a full 24-hour time period. Most of my, almost all of my best moments on Sabbath happen in the last four to eight hours of the 24-hour time block. That's like, that's when the really, so if you cut off before that, that's fine. Don't feel guilt or shame. Just like feel like you're missing, feel some FOMO. You know what I mean? Like just, you're missing out. Like there is something about a 24-hour full day cycle. But hey, if all you can squeeze in is Sunday afternoon for three hours and then you come to church, great. Like just start where you're at. Anything is better than nothing. And then finally, and this is the one I hear most often, and I just want to say it because there's a lot of families right now at the five, and if you don't have children, just remember this for someday or never or whatever your thing is. Um, But I hear this a lot, and it's from parents with either little children, say pre-five or six, or with teenagers, and they say, you know, we just can't do it. We have little kids, we have teenage kids, and we just can't do it at this stage of life. And I, I get that. I have three children who yesterday were that age. And I remember that whole season of life where the couch is just like a decorator item in your house. It's not for sitting on at all. It's definitely not for napping on. It's just for Instagram or for a picture. It's just there to look nice. You can't sit down for about a year of your life. I remember that vividly. But man, the great lie that parents believe and just human beings believe is that it'll be easier later, so let me do it then. And this is, I mean, it's so, like, I chuckle, and most of the time I just bite my tongue when these young parents come to me with little, little kids and say, well, I just know it will be so much easier when our kids are your age. And I think you have no idea what a 13-year-old boy is like. You have, it's so much harder. Oh, my, it's fantastic. Don't get me wrong. It's wonderful. And it is not easier at all. And so um, it's way more work in my experience and way better and all of that. Don't think that is negative. But I find myself saying the same thing. I have been saying for months now to Tammy, oh, I can't wait till our kids are just grown and they're like adult and like, because you know the whole thing with parenting is like you have to listen to your children talk to you about stuff that you don't care about (laughs) so that when they're older, they naturally talk to you about the stuff that you do care about. So right now, I have to listen to everything there is about Japanese anime, Star Wars Legos, and video games, and Fortnite. That's like the subject of most of the conversations in the Comer household right now. Like, design your own avatar, Dad. And it's like, I don't want to design an avatar. I just got done preaching about Sabbath. I don't want to talk about Gundam or whatever it's called. Oh, you say it wrong, Dad. Okay, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Whatever it is, you know? And so it's just exhausting. And so I find myself saying, oh man, well, we can just go out to tasting alder and I can just sit and we can chat philosophy or politics or whatever, like a novel that we're reading. I just, it'll be so much easier. And then I was actually chatting to our dear friend Pete Scazzaro of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in passing, I made the mistake of saying that. And he, in his queen's way, just like shut me down, <laughs> stopped the conversation and said, no, it does not get easier. He said, I had four daughters. When they were little, it was really hard to practice Sabbath. But guess what? They're all married now. So I have not four children. I have eight children. And now they've all had children. I forget how many grandkids he has, like 39 or something ridiculous. He said, I'm doing more parenting and it's more work now. He's 68 years old than I ever have before. And I just thought, dang. (laughs) Oh my, oh my gosh. And it just hit me, man. I fell prey. Like, I will, like, chide young parents for saying the same thing, and I'm doing the exact same thing. Man, it just hit me that the time for Sabbath is always now, never later. 
Yes, there are seasons to light. Yes, you have to be exceedingly gentle with yourself and your stage. Yes, when your kids are especially little and in the teenage years, that is especially tricky. But that doesn't mean you don't need it. You right now are laying the foundation for the soul of your children, for the family story that will mark you for decades to come. There is an emotional and spiritual and relational heritage that you have the opportunity to pass on and your children will look back at Sabbath as some of the best memories of their life when you were there and off your phone and present and your best self as a gift to offer your children and to offer your God. So don't procrastinate. Don't make excuses. Don't delay. I'm getting all preachy. I'm sorry. I say this because I love you. The time, my friends, is now. Wherever you're at, whatever that looks like, your personality, your stage of life, your best practices, but the time to rest is now. In closing, we, I just want to say this again. I say this at the end of every basics class, if you've been through our basics class. At the end, you hear all this stuff for two and a half hours about all the stuff we want you to do to be a part of Bridgetown Church. And then I get up and I say, how do you feel right now? And everybody just feels stressed out. And I say, you just, that was a whirlwind of information of things we're asking you to do. But hear me if you hear nothing else today. We are not asking you to do more. We're asking you to do less. Not about addition, but subtraction. We are not asking you to add the practice of Sabbath onto your already over-busy life. Before it was like, pray the examine for 10 minutes a night. Now it's like a 24-hour spiritual discipline. We're not asking you to add that. We're asking you to ruthlessly eliminate the hurry out of your body and to cut out things, to slow your life down, to enjoy it with Jesus and his community. So to end, would you stand with me? And I just want to read this poem from the prophet Isaiah over you. Just let this sink into you as we move into prayer. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, and the Lord's holy day honorable. And if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride and triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.